Hello, you're listening to Red Femme. You're here with Red Jen and even Redder Hannah. <laughs> yes, hello. <laughs> I think you're arguably redder. I think I'm arguably redder, but we're working on working on it. Working on making you less red or me more red? You more red, obviously. Okay. By the day. By the day. Which I think I've been pretty successful in, actually. You've been, you've been pretty successful the last two years. You and myself and our friend Joe. Wearing me down. Yeah. <laughs> I think you did a better job at it than me. I just, like, naggled you. And then Joe... With really... apologism for Soviet regimes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. So, on today's show, we're going to be talking about... U-turns, trans on the back foot, and pride becoming increasingly toxic. Yes, for brands, specifically. Specifically. Yeah. So, which one should we start with? Well, I think I was just, I was thinking about it today, and, you know, everything that happened with Bud Light, and Dylan Mulvaney, and Target, and other brands, it's just seeming like, I think what pride used to be, it used to be considered a family-friendly fun, summer, youthful sort of thing to associate your brand with. And people used to think, oh, we used to be really horrible to our gay cousin, and now we're not. And now we can all be a big, happy family together, and they can come to the family barbecue, and it's kind of has this, like, warm, nice connotation. Love is love, everything's great, and the connotation has seriously changed. Well, I don't know about that. For me, the timeline is pride became a thing when gay people were really hated and nobody wanted a gay person in their family. And the idea was that you could be proud of being gay. I mean, I kind of hate this idea of pride about just your sexuality. For me, it should really be called dignity. Yeah. Like, I just want some dignity around who I love or what it might, you know, private life. But pride is obviously much more a a punchy word and a kind of call to action. So I understand why it emerged and it was a very good thing for a number of years and I don't buy the thing of oh you know lesbians shouldn't work with gay men obviously we do have some things in common we're both gay yeah right and however much you can say there's differences between male and female sexuality sure but at the end of the day we were all classed as homosexuals and we had the same laws uh actually we didn't have the same laws prohibiting us the, uh, it was gay male sex that was illegal till 1966 in the UK. But in terms of advancing rights, yeah, we were lumped in together. We had a shared political interest. Exactly. Well, I guess my point is, is I fell down. But let me, but yeah. let me continue with the timeline. I then think that gay acceptance became greater, especially around the gay marriage stuff. Right, once that was won, but nobody touched Pride. There was not ubiquitous Pride flags here in terms of corporations until 2018, right. until the trans stuff was in full swing. Mm. I don't think, other than in Brighton, I remember going to Brighton Pride in like 2009, and it was like a very family friendly event. There were Christian protesters. There have been at London Pride. I don't know if they exist anymore. There was still this kind of these tensions, but that was clearly very. It was meant to be fun, a fun day out for even straight people and their kids. Then Pride became very much for straight people, I think, around the trans stuff. And I I, I can't, other than, I, I really can't see anywhere that Pride was ever a sponsor for any corporation until it became about trans. I don't know. I think in Canada it was. I think in Canada it was. What, pre-2014? Maybe not, no, now that you say it. But I just think that a, for the average person who's not 
clued into the culture war, I do maintain that it brands want to associate themselves with things that give positive feelings, mm-hmm. not negative feelings. For example, this year, a lot of brands sent out emails to people saying, if you want to be exempt from a Mother's Day email, because your mom's dead or you're estranged from your mother or whatever, we won't send you Mother's Day promotions. But let us know. But let you can opt out through okay. this link or whatever. Matt Walsh and everyone had a total meltdown and said, oh, this is anti-family or whatever. It's just brands don't want to be associated with a negative feeling. They don't want something coming into your inbox and go, oh, it's negative. You're less likely to spend money. Yeah. Well, it's also all about branding is is about building like a psychological profile for the brand, getting people to these people hire very, very expensive psychologists to put together their branding. And I just think that I just think that um, pride as a branding strategy is a marketing strategy did have some positive family friendly connotations. I'll give you an example. Um, what? Move your chair closer. Thank you. Did have some positive family friendly connotations. I was watching, um, I felt cause all the Gen Z's are tra- Tradcast now. So I had to figure out more about Tradcast. So I fell down a total YouTube rabbit hole the other day where I was watching people who were in traditional Catholic communities and people who had left and whatever. And there was this woman who was like, oh, my sister was clearly a lesbian and we all knew. And she went out to the military and then she came back and she just said, oh, you know, my roommate, Sarah. And she was like, yeah, she's like, I love her. And she was like, oh, I immediately knew what she meant by that. And she's like, I'm so grateful that I no longer have to have this stupid prejudice or like worry about oh should I include her should we not include her is it sinful for me to include her whatever so I do think there was some positive feeling it was family friendly you don't have to estrange anyone it's all inclusive and wonderful but gay gay marriage managed that more than pride I think I think that catapulted pride then being something that brands wanted to associate with 100% as a branding strategy Yeah. yeah like I think there's pride in and of itself which started the gay rights with the early gay liberation movement the the parades, the events, but there's also pride, the marketing strategy. We brand all of our stuff with rainbows and we talk about inclusion or whatever. I think it had quite lovely family-friendly feelings for a while, which is why brands wanted to use it. It's just so funny that that only really happened once transgenderism started to get its hooks in and then it's gone so far the other way. It's just like, I think that brands are really, really surprised because they think, oh, June, it's pride, everyone can get drunk and have well look they don't they don't know anything right like this is what's incredible is the woman who decided to sponsor dylan mulvaney is clearly an idiot i mean she's she's just some straight woman who probably doesn't know anything about what's actually going on in the alphabet soup world Mm. first of all secondly she clearly doesn't understand who what the demographic is of who drinks bud light i mean they were trying to do almost like an electoral strategy of like triangulation like well we've got all the bros who do we now get to drink Bud Light? Okay, yeah. we'll go for the queers. Yeah. It's like, no, but if you do that, you'll lose the bros. Not even on a homophobic basis, but because you've got Dylan Mulvaney promoting it. Mm. And his his TikToks that he did was like, I'm such a stupid woman, I can't open a Bud Light. Yeah. It was just ridiculous. The whole thing. And I just love that that is the worst marketing decision, apparently in history. Yeah. In terms of, of losses for them. Yeah, well, they lost, like, capital value of, like, almost in the billions. Like, huge amounts of money. Yeah. 
I think they're really surprised. So I think they all went full steam ahead with the pride stuff because it's like fun, summer, drinking, going out with friends, rainbow. This is all family and positive. And they're like, oh, no, (laughs) there's this whole other. This whole underbelly that we didn't know about to do with targeting kids. And that's the thing that I think is so interesting now that it's not just Primark is sponsoring Pride or the other way around or however it works. They're having that thing of chosen family. Yeah, you should go on your rant about this. I don't believe that anyone that's still shopping at Primark necessarily even knows what that is. Like, that's such a weird, fairly marginal thing, even within the Pride umbrella. Maybe in the UK, certainly not in Canada. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been hearing about chosen family since at least 2012. I heard someone say it for the first time. It was an American lesbian at LSE in 20. 10, 2011, mm. and then I think I just had a Google. But this idea originated, it seems, in, in again, genuine political context, right? With a yeah. real political sort of community organising. I love it now when people say they're community organisers. And it's like, so that doesn't exist anymore. Unless you're like part, you're a community organiser for ACORN, right? Which is a housing union. Who's that? comedian the guy from the east coast of america chris whatever who does the kind of very bizarre comedy yes uh, what's his name i don't remember he had a joke he says calls myself i call myself a community organizer but i'm not on speaking terms with my flatmates <laughs> yeah he's the guy that did the polyamory song right yes yes yeah. yeah well if you think about films like paris is burning and yeah. this is the kind of film that judith butler always talked about and it's sort of like a documentary but it's a bit of a netflix of the time documentary in that it's a little bit i think a little bit souped up in how it it seems very um flash and desirable and it makes looking gay it makes being gay look cool and it whatever it makes it look like they're and i'm sure this was true at the time it was filmed there's like this community of subversive interesting artistic but it's, it's dark, but it's also cool, but and it's also it, sexy. Right. But it's, but, yeah. So for people who haven't watched it, which will be almost everyone, yeah. it's really about, it's not just drag, it's about this almost like co-op or this kind of community home in Harlem ran by this nice aging drag queen gay man yeah. who allowed kids, so young teenagers onwards, who'd been boys. kicked out of home. Was it just boys? I don't think there had lesbians living in that house. Okay. Who, it was a building. It was a really big complex because this is before, this was when it was like $70 to live in Harlem for a month or whatever. Right. Right. So pre any kind of gentrification, there was this idea that they were genuinely helping kids had been kicked out of their home for being gay. And is it, it's better for street kids to be able to go and get a meal there, go and stay there overnight. And, you know, it was part of, I suppose, a wider culture of squatting that was a lot more allowed then. And that was this idea that if you are thrown out of your family, you can kind of cobble one together through flatmates and others who will help you on your way. And this idea of community elders, which again is another fucking cringe term to me. Yeah. Maybe it existed then. And this old drag queen gay man kind of gave good advice to these young gay men. Well, and it was all very interesting because they had houses. Because they kind of 
had the, this grandeur about them. So it was the House of Extravaganza and the House Dior, whatever. And then they would compete against each other in these... Oh, the fashion contests, yeah. In these in these fashion contests. So it was also... It was that, it was a housing project, but it also had all this associated culture yeah. with it. So you were no longer a homeless kid, you were at a house and you had a queen and you had a, you know... Well, they, were, they were in New York, which was, is an epicenter of fashion... It all seems very fun and very culturally interesting. Yeah. And I think that that kind of subculture, which doesn't exist anymore, is doing so much work to prop up all of this shit now. Yeah. At the time, no one would ever touch this. It was the AIDS crisis. People did not want gay people in their family. There was no way. There's a taboo around parents throwing the gay kids out, which they do. Huge taboo around cross-dressing. Yeah. Like now it's... It's, I mean, there's still a taboo around cross-dressing, but now it's not that unusual for, like, women to wear men's clothes, well, for men to dress up to go to a yeah. club in a, in a dress, like... Well, then it just meant you were gay. A lot of people that would yeah. sort of assume I was gay when I was younger or be homophobic to me, I'd be like, why do you think I'm gay? And they'd just say, well, you wear men's clothes. Yeah. That would be it. it before it was just assumed that you were trans, it was, well, I'm assuming you're gay. Yeah. And they're probably right a lot of the time, not just about It's really me. not that unusual for gay people to cross-dress. This is why it's, like, so, like... <laughs> Less than, I've been cross-dressing for 25 years, I yeah, guess. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like, qualifies you as trans mm. by some definitions, which is what's hilarious about all crazy, of this yeah crazy yeah anyway i'm sure that you know primark is really a very a working class shop in terms of people that go there it's really cheap it's one of the cheapest clothes shops if not the cheapest that you can find on the high street and i just think people don't understand what these words outside chosen family mean or they would start to not go there because what it means today is Go no contact with your parents whilst mm. you're underage and not for good reasons like abuse. Mm. They're not saying go to social services. Yeah. They're saying start cutting the sensible adults that you may have in your life out. Start cutting off your important relationships with people who are responsible to you. It's one of the first thing that cults do. Very, yeah, it's very cultish. If you have a meaningful relationship, you need to leave it behind. And especially if you have someone who wants to provide oversight. Obviously, not all parents do. We're not talking about those. We're talking about it. It is. It's encouraging children to essentially um, get rid of the kind of hurdles that are usually in place when adults want to groom children. Yeah. Which is there's a mum or a dad or an auntie or a grandma at the door that that is like the functioning gate yeah. of like no. I'm gatekeeping my child from you because I know more about the world than them and I know why adults want to speak to children. There are very few reasons why that should be happening. Yeah. And it's about get, getting around that gatekeeping to kids. Yeah. And it's uh, it's really sinister. Because, yeah, it comes from this thing of if you're a gay homeless youth, you can make your own family, have your own friends, get married and have whatever. But that's not what it means. Yeah, and also I question all of this anyway. Having flatmates is not the same as having a family. Well, that's what I was saying. Your say. friends aren't your family. No. There is a way to have a family. You get married and you have children and you take responsibility for your partner and your children and yourself. Yeah. And I hate to be a traditionalist, but that's it. And gay people got that right a decade ago. Yeah, it's also such like a interestingly liberal reformist demand, isn't it? Because, I mean, in the context of 
the gay liberation movement, the kind of the the rift, and those of you who are older who, who will remember this, was between the assimilationists and the people who are like, no, being gay is like a liberatory, th- we shouldn't want gay marriage, we shouldn't want... We shouldn't want to be in the military. But we I, want but I always wonder things. then, what do you want? Because obviously I was part of the socialist world at a time when they were saying no to the pink pound, pride is a protest, we don't want corporations. Okay, what's the plan then? Yeah. And I guess the plan was family abolitionism, which we're going to talk on, about on the next episode. But they were never explicit about that. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, well, how are you going to have gay acceptance? And I just think there's a load of straight people that don't realise... Or gay people that are accepted that don't realise what gay inacceptance, unacceptance is like. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea of a chosen family is not abolish the family. It's make your own. It's a... It's a, right. It's a... Not a... Well, the socialists didn't take that on. Not no. here, anyway. No. We... I really... Because otherwise I would have been like, what the fuck is this? Well, this wouldn't be the socialists. This would be, like, the radical queer yeah. whatever at the time. Like Dan Savage, which the most popular love advice column in the world, Dan Savage was like, "Oh, people were mad at me for being for gay marriage." It was a very controversial opinion as a gay person to have at one point. It was considered mm. like, "Oh, you're very conservative." Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't like a cool I, progressive demand. I can see that though. I can see that you can say, "I would prefer to have a radical movement." I probably yeah. would, but yeah. one doesn't exist. No. That's the issue. No. So in light of that not existing, those reforms are probably a good idea. Yeah. So, but yeah, I feel like Primark, if people become aware of that, that will be the next brand to drop that. Well, Primark's Um, already shit on like women's only spaces, so they backtracked on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that other brands are watching. So Starbucks has dropped its... Yeah, provision for trans workers that they'll help you with your transition. I just think conservatives were happy to kind of like, I think they got really burned on gay marriage and they properly lost the culture war on gay marriage. And it seemed for about 10 years, none of them were willing to touch anything to do with sexual politics. Yeah. From about 2010 to 2020. If he, it was just like, this is a losing game, we should just... And it all became... The conservative movement came a bit more about libertarianism. Mm. And like, oh, everyone should do what they want to do, and it's the free market, and just became about kind of unregulated capitalism, basically. And if you've got money, you can fuck who you want. Yeah. I think it just became about unregulated capitalism. And then... But it it came to... Like, the level of the... The fact that it's in education, your kid comes back talking about it from school, then you try and go to Starbucks to get a coffee, it's in your face there. Like, they've reached a serious tipping point. And Matt Walsh was just like, we want to make it toxic for brands. That's the goal, is to make pride toxic for brands. What's so incredible is how much, you know, you can say that the demand for gay marriage isn't radical. These people are actually, is it Lockheed Martin? Yeah. Like Lockheed Martin that makes bombs that kill hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Are, are, you know, like, oh, pride. Well, we know this. We know this. Like, I'm sure that the, our listeners of our podcast know that, like, the CIA is behind this stuff. Like, this is, it's just pure neoliberalism. Yeah. The whole thing. It's not radical at all. It hasn't been for a very, very long time. It's rainbow capitalism. It's homo washing or whatever they call it. And it's been that way for a very, very long time. Mm. 
And this is just the logical extension of it. Unfortunately, it just means that a lot of straight people who are apolitical or conservative are like, enough, like I can't have this on Netflix and in my kids' school and when I try and go to Starbucks and when I try and buy a swimsuit at Primark, like I've just reached my limit. It's strange how young the kids are that are learning about pride. Yeah. Because you don't really need to talk to kids about sexuality. You can say, oh, there's lots of different kinds of families. Yeah. Some people have mum and dad. Some people have two mummies. Some people have two daddies. And, you know, when you're older, you'll decide who you want to marry. But you don't have to worry about any of that yet. Yeah. It'll become clear to you as you grow up who and some, you want to be with. And some boys like girl toys and some girls like boy toys. And that's fine. Yeah. The, the end, end of, of discussion. Session. Yeah. You shouldn't bully anyone. That's like... Yeah, kind of the extent. I wonder if it's the family image of pride that made them think we can talk to kids about this. It's very infantilizing. This is one of the things I always hated about pride. Mm. Was first of all, I don't like discussing my sexuality or private life in public. Yeah, and I don't know why I need to go on a parade to feel any which way. But I think I did go to two prides when I was like nineteen, twenty mm-hmm. for the experience. Mm. And it was like a fun day out. Oh, and I went again in 2014, 15, and it was just an expensive experience. And I just went with a group of straight people. And I just thought, oh, this is about money. This is, I, I think I spent like 70, 80 pounds on some drinks and dinner. And well, today that would probably be fine. But at the time, I remember thinking, how is this possible that some food and a couple of drinks has cost me this much within about three, four hours? Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is a money making exercise, which of course it must be. And I always found the infantilism a bit weird. And I remember thinking, well, you know, if you, if you know you're gay when you grow up, you tend to come out at around sixth form age or when, once you get to university, that's what I did. I was just, I was like, I'm not going to lie to anyone anymore. Once I'm at university, I'm not going to deny. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was 19. And after that, maybe you do a bit of gay clubbing and then you get over it and then that's it. Yeah. Like you kind of have your gay fun. I think in the past that's what happened and people just then became adults. But today with this extended adolescence that we see of like 24-year-olds doing TikTok streams about Pokemon cards and so on, I do think that the infantilism has confused people into thinking this is a thing maybe for kids and that also gay adults are children. Well, I think that homosexuality as a phenomenon is is pretty is it's it's a minor it's a minority thing but it's not like uncommon it's not that unusual there's been instances of it across history it's whatever it's always been part of kind of the conversation but then the but then being a demi girl pansexual polyamorous um kinky whatever this is all very new. So that means you have to like build it into the social reproduction of things. You have to start teaching. You have to naturalize it by teaching it to kids. Right. Basically. And it's all part of this DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, hive mind, basically, which is that they've taken over the HR departments. And so regular teachers and regular straight people think, oh, no, we have to get behind this or we're going to get sued. This is the next thing we'll be sued over. So we have to be very, very good on this. Yeah, it's gotten into into schools and a lot of it is like very sexualized. It's a weird combination of being very infantilized and very sexualized at the same time. I think the infantilization and this it's like Nancy Kelly and her mumsiness. Yeah. It's a cover. It's sort of like 
a eunuch cover and a childish cover for what is actually a lot of insidious perversion around mm. basically adults grooming children. And the other thing that's a part of this is that homosexuals are a very small market share. Yeah. And they're not a very cohesive market group. Got, it's a, lot, not, got a lot of money there. Yeah, but it's still very small. Yeah. You can't do a whole campaign of beer steins or garden furniture directed at homosexuals because it's just it's a you could do camp, dem- you could do camping gear for lesbians and you would sell that shit out yeah you would <laughs> very tiny amount of people lesbian community is very well, small of course so you want to do that thing of a straight person can virtue signal by having a beer can with a pride flag on it well i think it's a bit more than that in that it's a small very small demographic it's very hard to market to so in order to build the market demographic, you have to include as many labels as possible so as many straight people can identify into it and they can buy the garden camp, the garden fucking furniture and they can buy the beer stein and they can buy the glitter and they can come to your party and they can whatever. It's a, it's a, making it, it's making it a, um, a demographic. It's making it a population of people that are, who's the kind of person that's interested in buying pride? What do we want to signal about our brand? That we're young, that we're inclusive, we're also family friendly, but we're whatever. Oh, pride is perfect. It fits into all of that. And you can widen that bag so it's about one in four people. Yeah, so it's a very tiny market share, and it's about what do we want to signal about our brand and who do we want to brand to. It's about building a contingency of people who are willing to spend money on your product. (laughs) Yeah, that makes total sense. It is just about market building. So straight people that call themselves queer will spend on Pride. Yeah, exactly. And they'll spend money at the companies that endorse Pride. Yeah. Yeah. It's because all that brands... What brands do is like, who is the kind of person who buys this? And what how Americans think of it because of like consumer fetishism is what kind of person does this product make me? Oh, I think about buying things like that too. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, if I have this skincare, it means that I'm a, this like rosemary oil, like. Silky woman. I'm like, like, I'm like a hippie kind of like earth mama but like oh if i buy the sciencey sounding skincare i'm like really sensible and into science or whatever it's all about what kind of person you are yes well it's like the difference between how middle class and working class people eat like working class people buy the cheapest thing yeah or something a bit more if they can get away with it middle class people what they eat is about what it says about them exactly yeah 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 well I think that we're going to see more U-turns and another U-turn that has happened is about the reformation of the Equality Act. Yes. Which is something that Stonewall and the trans lobby has been trying to get for years. Of course, they wanted to reform it so that it had self-ID. But now because there has been such a backlash, the government is reforming it. What are you laughing at? Nothing. The government is reforming it so that Instead of just saying sex, it'll say biological sex. So it's harder to conflate biological sex with gender identity. And they're making it much more clear and robust and essentially emboldening and underlining women's sex-based rights. Yeah, like even Kenny Badenoch was like, so lesbians can exclude males from like book clubs or similar things, which Nancy Kelly threw a cataclysmic fit over. Really? Yes, she went on like an eight 
tweet, tweet round tweet round about how <laughs> ridiculous but it look, is. these people are just seeing their careers crumble like this yeah. is their life's work for the past decade and they don't care about anything else right i know exactly who these people are i've met these people before yeah all these people that operate in the third sector bubble they want to capture trade unions and make them just like them yeah they want to live in this incredibly lucrative in terms of their salaries office world where you pontificate about policy all day long and anything minute is a big deal and they believe that they carefully crafted this project over years and years of grounding it schmoozing with the right people greasing the right palms licking the asses they had to lick right yeah kissing the rings they had to kiss all of these (laughs) metaphors we can use and then when you don't see the result and you're like but wait I thought this was the pathway. This was the way in the good. I had the map. I had the right compass. And everybody behind me telling me this was it and I was in charge. It's like being a sea captain and being like, we're going to get to this island. And then actually the island is the opposite island to which you were wanting to arrive at. You're like, what is this destination? And so it's making them look ineffective. They'll all be thinking, how do I even move on to a new job when under my watch at Stonewall... The Gender Equality or the Equality Act and the section on gender and sex, whatever, was reformed in the opposite way that I tried for years yeah. to change. Well, you look like a fuck up. And they, you look like an incompetent. And they really hate that the opposition to this, they want to pretend it's the right wing, but they really hate that the opposition to this is largely women and lesbians. Yeah. And women like I'm sorry, lesbian self-hatred and, like, ass-kissing and, like, fitting your way into the dominant thing is something to behold. It's a, like, lesbians as a group are historically and contemporary do it a lot. A lot of lesbians are in the military. A lot of lesbians are in the police. A lot of lesbians do things to try and make themselves fit in, whatever. They're they're very conformist. Very conformist. And the fact that Nancy Kelly... Her strategy has been to put herself into this DEI hive mind and to find, oh my god, it's lesbians, the group I'm a part of, who are the evil bigots. What? Oh my god, everyone's gonna think there's something wrong with me as a lesbian. Ah, like it's just it causes like such a fracture, and they have to believe that LGBT is one big, huge umbrella that we all love each other and it's all wonderful, and they cannot like the fact that it's lesbians who are pushing pushing the resistance to these reforms really well, bothers them. it must be a mindfuck, given that a lot of lesbians do identify with authority, yeah. are incredibly conformist, are really not rebellious in any kind of sense, and a lot of them become trans men because yeah. of that. Yeah. Because they're like, how can I just get out of the way of, you know, criticism by society? How can I avoid lesbophobia? I'll just take on all of these, you know, medical procedures so that I'm more liked. And there's a, a greater consensus that I'm a okay person. So you see all of that happening. And it's like, what, 90% plus of trans men are lesbians. But then you just see that there's this opposition. And it doesn't make sense to you. Yeah. Why would a group have a minority that behaves like this in such an oppositional way? Yeah. So I get. I think it's a response to basically being positioned as like other being considered non-conformist because yeah. why why won't you fuck men why won't you be a compliant woman the majority decide to get uh, get out of that position through transing and then the other side go well yeah i know 
uh, no, and you fucking hate me for it, but there's nothing I can do and I'm not going to... Yeah. You, you basically become more stubborn about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is what has happened. Yeah. It's, the, it's two responses to the same event, or the same subject position. Right. Of lesbophobia, basically. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the backlash affects gay rights in general going forward um because it just i just think conservatives particularly in america have simply had enough and the kind of bit of tolerance that they were having for this is now completely gone so thank you to the democratic party and all the liberals who destroyed this very good thing we had going well that's the thing your tiktok the other day that said that there's already been a seven percent fall within a year yeah. of approval for just not gay marriage but that it's okay to be in a gay relationship the question was are same-sex relations morally acceptable wow and it went from 74 percent to 61 or something in a single year so it went from three quarters to two-thirds yeah to just under two-thirds and for republicans I, I don't have the numbers in front of me but for republicans it was a bigger drop it used to be about 60 percent of them said yeah. yes it's fine now it's more like 50 wow yeah those aren't insignificant no it's a huge huge drop and i want to talk briefly about lloyd russell moyle yes you have an inside (laughs) scoop i'll let you take the floor a little bit so he spoke at this thing in parliament where we were talking about reforming the equality act and he stood up and he did this horrible example of oh, I have a butch lesbian friend who says she gets challenged in the toilets mm. and she doesn't want any of this. Look, this has happened to me since I was... Happened to me. 12 yeah. or something. I used to be annoyed by it, honestly, because I used to think, oh, come on. Like, how do you not understand that some women just look like me? This is ridiculous. But now I'm very pleased by it. Yeah. Also, if you just say, oh, no, I am a woman... They're so like they're very apologetic. Yeah, which I used to find even more insulting. Like, look, it's not that bad to look like this. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. And it's okay that you yeah. mistook me for a man, whatever. But now I'm just very glad it happens. I've been challenged by like children, by like eleven year old girls. Yeah. And honestly, it's a good thing. Yeah. I'm now totally for this. Mm. Um, but he kind of tried to use a lesbian example to kind of hit home about the because of course a lot of this we're talking about gay people. Um, and he's gay, and I guess he thought, oh, this is the best weapon that I can uh, use for this. But he, and he made a suggestion as well of, he said, oh, in my constituency, there's a new swimming pool, and there are individual changing rooms and showers with kind of sinks outside. And Jess Phillips said, but, you know, I don't want to walk past a man in my towel. And it's just the fact that men cannot get over that women don't want to walk around half naked around strange men and the way that men behave around that. Mm. And the example that I tweeted about is that in 2009, I knew him through the Woodcraft folk that we had a mutual friend, basically. And so he was at my house for what reason? I don't know, probably to see this mutual friend whose girlfriend was living with me at the time. And he had gone upstairs to use the loo came downstairs and his flies of his trousers his zip was open and someone the the guy pointed out to him and he said oh makes for easier access haha <laughs> and he sort of made this joke that was ambiguously sexual and my point was how at ease he was 
to just wandering around the stranger's house yeah. with his trousers undone. Mm. And that even when it was pointed out to him, he wasn't really embarrassed. He just made a sexual joke. And there was, I was there and then there were two, three teenage girls. And that in front of strangers, yeah. this kind of am- ambiguous joke was made. And yeah, he was involved in the Woodcroft folk. It's very clear that all the safeguarding... Tell people what the Woodcraft folk is. The Woodcraft folk is like the left-wing version of the Girl Guides or the Scouts. The socialist version. Yeah, back in the day it was in the 1980s. It's probably less now, but it's the idea that you play collective games rather than just competitive games. It was the, the utopianists of the 80s, right? This educationalists that thought, if we can just teach children to be different, we'll have a different world. Right. And of course that's true. Teaching is a big part of social reproduction, but they were very, very into this, right? This utopianism thing. I, I don't know why it's called that. I don't know if they thought we'll have a utopia at the end, but that's what the this tradition is called. And they founded the Woodcraft folk and everyone in it was kind of a communist or a socialist or a, a progressive or like a lefty of some, at some of some variety. So some of the things, good things they do or did was that we would take things like um, instruments and art equipment into kind of a council estate, into kind of a park area, and kids could come and play with it. Sometimes there were kids that didn't necessarily have access to those kind of things. Right. So there was this nice idea of kind of outreach, but it increasingly became just a real, you know, white middle class liberal thing. Right. As as politics did generally, right? I'm not saying it's an exception. But because of that, we all had to have safeguarding, training, and it clearly completely went over Lloyd's head. And I do know that in the Woodcraft folk, um, there was there was adult men who would marry 16-year-olds. Yeah. And in fact, the mutual friend that I had, he started dating an 18-year-old who he'd been the elfin leader of. Mm-hmm. And the elfins were like eight-year-olds. Wow. So there was a lot of this, as there is in any children's organisation, to be honest. I'm not implying that Lloyd was part of that, but he was known to be promiscuous. He'd already been incredibly promiscuous and it was known. Again, not necessarily Woodcraft folk, but it was known that this was... And this is a thing that for him, sexuality... Yeah, it's like... It's clearly not a problem. Yeah. And um, sexual access clearly wasn't a problem. And wandering around your house, wandering around a stranger's house without doing up your trousers properly, <laughs> clearly not a problem. Yeah. And that when someone mentioned it and he just made this kind of like, ooh, makes it easier access, wink, wink joke. I thought, oh, God, this guy is really into sex stuff. Okay, I get it. Because I'd already heard the stories. So my point about this is for him, he can't even fathom that women would not want to wander around half naked in front of men. Yeah. That a woman, that lesbians might want to be, uh, have their sexuality shielded a bit from men yeah. by being together. And I think he just can't, I think it's on another planet for him. Yeah, totally. I mean, he seems like a real, uh, it's a really weird thing that in the UK, it's, sorry, but vicious gay men who are kind of some of the primary pushers of gender identity stuff. And in the States and in Canada, it's straight women. Or, quote, sorry, bisexual women. <laughs> no comment on that. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really weird dynamic. And I don't know if it's because the UK is a more conservative country with a small C. Mm. 
and there was maybe more there's more kind of latent homophobia or something so that gay men feel like this is the new gay rights i need to be behind this we need to make this part of kind of the the hegemony that controls things because i'll be next if it's not see my theory is not simply i spoke about this a bit on the new flesh podcast but actually it's not simply that i think they believe or will be next if everyone's saying these trans women are fetishists will be next i think it's that they supported it as most people do when you don't know about these things yeah and then when it was revealed actually these are a bunch of overwhelmingly perverts yeah they thought i now have an association so yes. i need to make sure that that is never the dominant narrative yes, yes that's what it is and that's why lloyd and owen jones just look incandescent yeah they when really women do. bring up things like fetishes and so on it's also probably because they also know that their sexual behavior in terms of promiscuity a lot of people would think is a bit unusual yeah there's probably some of that some shame around that that they feel but I think it's that they'd already committed and got a bit of an association. And then they think, oh, God, if this happens to be the, like, if this is true, and then that truth gets out, I will be then seen as, well, why did you support yeah. grooming kids? Yeah. And then they start to think, oh, my God, I'll be seen as this as well. But it's, yeah, it's, it's because they already supported. And for straight men, it's Teflon. Like, straight men don't have to have any position on this. They don't have to say yes or no. They don't have to be committal about either side. Like, I've had interactions with Aaron Bastani on Twitter where he's not denounced me. Mm. He's not gone, you turf, you transphobe, whatever. If it were a gay man or a woman, that would have to be the response. And he does a very clever thing of, like, avoiding the question, basically. Mm. But basically, straight men can for the most part, with some exceptions. My friend Stuart Parker is one such exception who got into a huge amount of trouble. But for the most part, can say what they want about this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without facing consequences either way too much. Yeah. Yeah. So. Because they're at a remove. They're allowed to say, oh, look at my objective perspective Mm. outside of this kind of... And so I think a really good example, a a kind of... uh, I don't want to say micro example, actually, because it's quite significant, but um, there's been a very quick about turn is Melbourne University. Yes. Yeah. Right. So for those who don't know, a couple of days ago, some we don't know who they are, probably men, probably students. This is where Holly Lawford Smith right. teaches. Yeah. A GC philosopher. Two people put on balaclavas, smashed up the front of the university building, some of the windows, and then they daubed pro-trans graffiti over the front of it on a main road and the university has condemned this in really colorful language actually Mm. and it's the vc it's the same vice chancellor who only two months ago in april was sending out emails condemning transphobia because of the let women speak event in melbourne Mm. and i just think it's so interesting that that then gave uh confidence and bounce to these people and then they've kind of charged ahead and then now it's becoming aimed at the university aimed at property targeting staff and i think also because holly's put in this kind of legal complaint yeah they're now doing the fastest emergency break you can do i mean it really is you know a captain of the ship seeing an iceberg and going okay we need to do a u-turn as fast as possible because i see now that this was a bad direction to go in and it's just two months to see that change is quite considerable yeah it is 
Well, I think it's just the power of, really, from what I understand, it's a trade union grievance, right? Like through through WorkSafe, which is a a third party um, mediator that's appointed by both the union and the employer to mediate workplace disputes. But they're very no nonsense. Weren't they a trade union originally? Or no, no, they're a private company. That's but why are they America. so good? Why are they so good for the for the employee? Because I think they're trying to manage liability. The whole thing is about avoiding a lawsuit. Right. So if you, as a third-party mediator, make demands that are quite stringent, then the employee then doesn't have the excuse to sue later. Okay. Because then the employer can go, look, we, we did through WorkSafe. Look at the 18 different things we did to, to accommodate your safety. Mm. You do not have legal grounds to sue anymore. Right. So it's a whole thing about avoiding liability. Yeah. And I think that now that's happened, what the university will be thinking is they're targeting one staff member. Imagine if this becomes more. Yeah. Imagine if we eventually have half a dozen lawsuit lawsuits on our hands in the next 10 years. And then also... Or we want to avoid a lawsuit. Yeah. I well, think, yeah, but yeah. They, they can imagine the financial yeah. clock ticking yeah. up, right? Yeah, yeah. If If they didn't do this slamming on the brakes, doing a very fast U-turn as quick as possible. And I also think that whilst the university will tolerate things like protests, when you get into criminal damage, and especially when it's small scale, right? Like, it's not like this is a mass movement where people go, oh, well, these things happen, people smash windows. This wasn't like a general smashing of windows like the suffragettes did yeah. to get everybody's attention. This was a very specific, targeted, two-person thing that is really designed to intimidate the individual they're aiming at, which is Holly Lawford-Smith, and other staff members yeah. that work there, that this will be aimed at you in the future. I mean, no one wants to go into work and think, oh, why, why has my workplace been smashed up? Oh, God, everybody feels a little bit threatened by that. And then you hear the backstory about it, and then everybody is talking. And I think that the university did the right thing. And I just, it's just really hard to put the cat back in the bag. After you have supported these people and emboldened them, you probably do then have to do pretty stringent measures and use pretty stern language to try and damage control yeah yeah and i just think yeah it'll be it'll be a avoiding a lawsuit exercise for sure yeah. and this is why it's so important to do things through the courts i know and this is why things like work safe disputes or workplace grievances are good but this is why the employer doesn't mind working with a third-party mediator is because the whole it's a whole exercise in avoiding a lawsuit yeah so it's a shame though that the trade unions aren't they used to be the place you could go to yeah and and they will be and they are but it's it's been a it's been an well not yeah no not about gc stuff no. it used to be if you were going to sue your employer the trade union would provide the solicitor yeah, yeah. yeah you didn't have to spend money they had their solicitors who would write letters for you you just had to go and speak to your union rep have some meetings with people yes, yeah. today the unions are not defending gc women no. It's just crazy. I, I was kind of casting my mind back to like 20 years ago and some of the lecturers at university, um, some of the lecturers that we considered racist, right? For particular views on a particular country that we'll never talk about on mm -hmm. this podcast. But no, there was never, ever, even in our mind that we would get that person sacked. Yeah. Never. The most there would have ever been was maybe if they were teaching a course on that country and they were doing it in a in a not neutral way you could say the content should be changed and if they won't change the content perhaps they shouldn't teach it but that wasn't even 
something yeah. that was done. But the idea that you try and sack someone and say they shouldn't be working here. I do think there is a particular quality to the gender identity question that really makes people insane, especially when it's women. When it's women who say, I'm not going, no, men aren't women. No, I don't support transgenderism. No, gender identity isn't real. Yeah. I feel like a, a male professor who is a conservative who teaches economics can get away with it just fine. But when it's a woman who's teaching philosophy, fe- fe- feminist philosophy, the fact that this de- this debate exists within feminism is just absolute histrionics about it from, you know. Well, also, there's a lot of discounting. So some half-baked idiot went and did a video down at the site where the university had covered up the graffiti and he kept saying oh you know maybe some staff and workers you know this made them feel unsafe da, da, da. but it's the discounting any gc woman who sells her labor at a workplace is obviously a worker but she's never in the circle then of who we consider workers yeah they have to take her out and that's i suppose in the past been said like oh well they're bourgeois university lectures are bourgeois why they don't even get paid that well they're, they have to do like huge amounts of work, a lot of them. And also, there are parts, there'd be petty bourgeois, and the petty bourgeois are workers. But they, they wouldn't, but they're workers. not even petty bourgeois. They might be if they were self employed. They're not. I mean, maybe. The point is, is that. They're not. They're literally not. Why not? Because they are straightforward employees and workers that work for a workplace. That's what a petty bourgeois is. A worker that works for a workplace. So the person that works in the bakery down the street is petty bourgeois. No, but petty petty bourgeois people are not people who actually own the means of production. They own access to management. No, they own own small businesses or they're part of management. If you are an academic, you are not part of management. Okay, fair. Yeah. The VC is petty bourgeois. The VC is arguably like bourgeois. Yeah. Right? So, no, it's not not at all. Even if, I mean, I don't think they are on exuberant salaries, but even if they were, yeah, their the labour relations relevant. just don't change. Yeah. And it's just incredible to me that there's this discounting of who's a worker. And it reminds me of the Canadian trucker fiasco. Yeah. The fiasco, by the way, that socialists refused to support them, even though it was a mass worker strike. The Communist Party of Canada refused to support them and did a big magazine thing with these people are fascists on the front paper of their magazine. Wow, yeah. yeah. Same with the socialist workers newspaper here. Yeah. So they had to then tar them as fascists. And then when I read the article by the socialist worker, they said links to fascists. It's exactly what they're doing with GCs. Yeah. So it's how do we manage to redefine these workers as not workers because we're meant to be workerists. I mean, so many of the communist yes. parties are class reductionists, right? This is this is their bread and butter. This is yeah. meant to be yeah, everything yeah. That they're about. How can we redefine these people as not workers? And that's what you, they, so they have links to fascists. It's just crazy. I can't even think of a strike that I wouldn't support. I mean, because fascists don't go on strike. They smash strikes up. I can't even think of the kind of strike that I wouldn't support. Mm, let me think. Is there a strike I wouldn't support? But let alone for someone's views, right? Not even something they've done, but their views. But I can't even think of an instance. No, I really can't. I'm just trying to think if there's something to do with... If a group of men said, we're striking because we want money, we want a prostitution bonus where you give us extra money for <laughs> so we can go something insane like that, I'd be like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but that's never happened. It's but like... what the trucker strike was, was we don't want 
we want the right to refuse a medical treatment that we don't want, yeah. which is, should be a right of every person, by the way, it, bar, it, bar capacity. It actually, and other. But it actually is. And like, it actually is. You're allowed to refuse medical treatment at the hospital and leave. Unless you don't have capacity right. or, you know, there's other things, that, other ethical considerations. But for the most part, you have the right to refuse medication, treatment, surgeries. Yeah. This is like part of what they, you know, this is part of like kind of basic human rights in Western countries. Like this is not a difficult thing that people who are traveling in a truck and rarely leaving the truck between borders should not have to get a vaccine they didn't want. And now to the point where Trudeau is denying, Trudeau has said, well, we never told anyone that they had to get a vaccine. Just crazy. It's crazy to see who are supposedly workerists, you know, workers' rights, socialist groups that are even criticized for being just class reductionist. Yeah. See a mass strike happen of working class people. And, you know, they tried to do the thing, actually, that, that you brought up, which is, well, some of them were self-employed, so when yeah. the petty bourgeois. And I was like, well, first of all, that wouldn't make a difference. And most weren't, no. And I would still support the petty bourgeois striking. Yeah, of course I would. For something, yeah. My local pizza shop wants to go on strike to make some point. I'd be like, all right, good for you. Or if managers, <laughs> I support management strikes. Even if managers yeah, did. Yeah. The point is that it rarely happens and they can't withdraw labour in a mass way. All of this is meant to be about understanding the sets of social relations that spring up um, you know, around capital. This is not meant to be a, well, if you do that, bro, I don't support you. <laughs> And I mean, the fact is, is that the United States and Canada are very economically linked. We, they use all of our water and lumber. We use a lot of our goods. They shut down the economy of two major nations for a solid two weeks. So it's really funny that the strikes that actually call, that can actually shut down sectors, you don't support those. Mm-hmm. You support the writer's strikes. for comedy writers in LA that's really interesting but you don't support the strikes that would actually shut down sectors of society well that's the thing that you know all workers can withdraw their labor power but if you're a dock worker who's part of shipping things all over the world obviously you have a lot more labor power to withdraw than a tv writer much as I appreciate them yeah I mean (laughs) yeah you know yeah so I think that that really shows uh that about turn of two months is definitely something and i and i do think that unfortunately it is how it is you you really have to play ball and do legal stuff i remember the beginning of the month you said oh we should do an episode on pride and i was like oh it's so boring like i don't want to talk about that like who cares it's gonna be the same gc takes but so much has happened this pride month yeah it was like a volcano yeah that erupted the, the the American conservatives have had enough. A lot of apolitical regular people have had enough. The school stuff has become out of control. But also as a gay person, I've had enough. Completely. I want people to know, like, I don't want your kids indoctrinated into knowing what anal sex is by age seven. No. Like, I think that anyone doing that, I agree with Jordan Peterson, they should be in fucking prison. I agree. I think... It's a form of, it is a form of child sexual abuse to expose yeah. children to sexualized things. I, I think that adult sexuality develops from the onset of puberty. Yeah. And it's a long, complicated road. I don't even think that teenagers necessarily need to have a sense of, like, I'm absolute this or I'm absolutely that. No. And I just think, you, you know, kids need to be told you don't need to worry about this stuff till you're older and you'll figure it out. 
in your teen years and as an don't adult. Don't bully anyone. Yeah, um, don't be horrible to anyone about having you know, gay parents. Yeah, or or being uh, gender non-conforming. Exactly. If there's a little boy who likes ballet. Like, don't be. But they could never. <laughs> they could never say that. I mean, this was their way into schools, right? Partly because you can't talk to kids about sexuality. So they said, we're going to talk to them about gender. Yeah. And now they're talking to them about sexuality. And I just wish we could get rid of all of this infantile shit, the pride flag, fucking unicorns, yeah. just stupid shit and be like, gay people are actually normal, serious people like everybody else. Yeah. We don't need this patronizing crap. I just want some basic rights. No one needs to be nice to me for being gay. No. It's or, really under- or treat me like a special person. It's a really unremarkable yeah. thing, actually. Apart from it's not even are, that uncommon. Apart from there are a lot of talented gay writers, male writers and artists. Something I, pointed, I noticed. I, I, well, I noticed it first and pointed it out to Jen. Who are we talking about? Is it James Baldwin? Maybe it was Who? Da Vinci? We were talking about someone and I said gay. All the good ones are gay. All the good gay, all the artists, all the male artists I like are gay. And you said no. And I said, yeah. I said Tennessee Williams, <laughs> James Baldwin. Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal. Kafka, Truman, basically. Truman Capote. Mm. And you were like, oh my God. Yeah, you're right. I am mm. right. And then we had a discussion about why we think that is. Which was a cyclonic discussion that we will leave for another episode. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you for listening in to our Pride episode. Yes, this was our Pride episode. Bye-bye.